0: Good morning, guys. How are we doing? Doing good today? Good. Happy Sunday. Um, As he said a second ago, um, I'm Jackson Grant. I'm the student pastor here. Um, And I have actually had the honor, uh, Frank asked me to um, bring the message today, and I was so excited. Um, I love it when I get to be able to get up here and um, just share my heart and share what God God has given to me today. And uh, I truly, truly believe that he's given me something today that will speak to everybody. Um, So, with that being said, let's jump right into it. Um, I'm going to be in Genesis 2 to start off with, Um, so if you want to open your Bibles to that. um, We'll have the words on the screen as well. Um, Also, if you want to pull out your phones and do it on your phone, like, I have my phone, that's totally fine. I'm not going to be offended. Um, So what I want to begin with, and the one thing that I want to kind of have overarching today, the the one thing that I want you guys to get from today is one simple question. But it's a simple question that kind of has a complex answer, I feel like, if you want to answer it correctly. And the question that I have is, what does God want? Or I guess another way to put it is, what does God want from you? What does God want from me? What does God want from us? Um, It sounds like a really simple question. Um, But let's say, for example, if you were asked that question and you had to summarize that question in one word, what would it be? If you had to answer that question in one word, what would it be? What does God want? It sounds really simple, but if you're like, wait a minute, I have to summarize the entire Bible and the whole point of the entire Bible in one word. I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, So it's an interesting question to think about, and that's what I want you guys to be thinking about as we go through today. Um, Now, if you were here or listened about a month ago, I was up here um, about a month ago as well, and I was talking about, um, we talked about the prodigal son, and we talked about how if you look at the context of the prodigal son um, and see that he's actually talking about the prodigal son to the religious people of the day, it kind of changes the whole narrative of the story. It kind of changes the whole point of the story, and we talked about that, and we talked about how the fundamental difference in Christianity is that it's a covenant relationship and not a contract relationship. And now we mentioned when we talked about that, and I didn't really have a chance to go in depth, one of the main things that we talked about was intimacy. We talked about intimacy with God and having that close and intimate relationship with God. And I think that if I had to answer the one word about what the Bible and what God wants, I would argue that that word is intimacy, and I would argue that that word is closeness, is dependency on God. Um, and I think that that even starts from the very beginning of the Bible, from the very beginning, even in the Old Testament in Genesis 2, which is why I had you turn there. Um, it's about the Bible is about God saying, "Hey, you know I- I'm here with you." I think a lot of times we think God is this kind of lofty and high- up dude who's just like kind of watching over all of us, right? But I think that the Bible argues and better picture than that, that he is here. He is with us. He is in every aspect of our life and he is intimately involved with us. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. So in Genesis two, let's go there. Um, we're going to start in verse 15. Um, we kind of know where we're at, right? This is the garden narrative. We're still in the garden. We're still in the garden of Eden. This is where, um, this is where everything is perfect, right? God makes this perfect, um, this perfect world, this perfect garden for Adam and Eve to live in. Sin hasn't entered the world yet. So we are in this perfect time period, okay? And then I would argue that God really gives them an obscure and arbitrary command. It's a very weird command if you think about it in the context of the story. So let's just start in verse 15. It says, Then he took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep it and work it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You are free to eat eat from any tree in the garden except, what does he say? Except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day that you eat it, you will surely die. For the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And that's in verse 17. It's a little after that. So does that sound like a weird command to anyone? So God's like, hey, I know I've created this perfect and awesome world for you guys to live in, but I created this fun little game too, to where I created one tree in a whole garden, where if you touch it, you're going to die. It's weird, right? That's a weird command. And um, I don't know about you, but I struggled with that for a long time, even as a kid, um, because I was taught as a kid that God is not going to tempt you, right? Well, I don't know about you, but anytime I see something that says, hey, like, don't touch this, that's the biggest temptation I have. The first thing I want to do is go touch it, right? Especially like if there's a sign that says, hey, like wet paint, don't sit or don't touch. I'm like, that's not wet. And I'm like, that's the first thing I do is I want to see how wet it is, right? Or um, especially if you're at like a, especially a Mexican restaurant and they like say hot plate and they put it right in front of you. You're like, dude, there's no way. And then you like touch it and it like singes your skin off. Yeah. So I struggled with that for a really, really long time. I was like, this is such a, like, I feel like this is a temptation, you know? Like God's saying, hey, don't like, don't, whatever you do, don't touch that tree. The first thing I would do is go stare at that tree and be like, what, what, why, why, what's so special about this tree? And I think it's interesting that he, he says that, that he has this one command. That's the only command that he gives them, right, is to don't touch this tree. And like I said, I struggled with it for a while. And then I said, but there's got to be something more to it than that. There has to be something, there's got to be a deeper meaning than just God saying, hey, don't touch the tree, right? Obviously, there's got to be something more to it. And I think what's actually going on here is God's kind of laying down a mandate for how we are to, to, to walk, with him and live with him. He's laying down a mandate for that. So what I mean by that is he wants you to either walk with him or he says, okay, you can live in your own autonomy and you can kind of do your own thing, right? He's laying out these two paths. Um, Let me ask you guys a question. So I I do want class participation, okay? I'm going to ask you a question. It's not a trick question. So if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what do you get? Knowledge of good and evil, right? You get knowledge of good and evil. That's what you get when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Very good. So here's another one, not a trick question. If you don't eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what do you not have? Knowledge of good and evil. All right, now we're getting it. So you, have, you don't have the knowledge of good and evil if you don't eat from the tree. So last question, and again, not a trick question. If you don't have knowledge of good and evil, where are you going to get it? God. Yes. Thank you. You're going to get it from God. And that's exactly what he's saying. That's the whole point of this, right? He's saying, Hey, you can eat from that tree. That's fine. And you can have the knowledge of good and evil. That's totally cool. You can follow that path. You can live in that own autonomy for yourself, but you're going to die later, right? That's basically what that's basically what he's saying. That's a story that he's saying, right? Or he's saying, come with me be intimate with me and let me show you the knowledge of good and evil because my way is better. My way is right. I promise you, trust me and walk with me. That's what he's saying. And that's what this whole first part of the story is about, right? He's depending on God for that. And it's this almost utter dependence, like you're so dependent on him, almost like a, um, like a parent and a child, like a parent and a little baby. We just had a baby dedication, right? So those little babies that were up here, could they survive by themselves No. Without parents, they would die, right? They can't really feed themselves. They can't really do anything by themselves. They are totally and utterly dependent on God. And that's what this story is talking about, is this utter dependency that we need to have on God to figure out what is right and wrong, this closeness, this this intimacy with him, right? Now, Now, we know the rest of the story, um, do Adam and Eve, they're like, yeah, God, we got you. Totally cool. Not going to touch that tree. Not a big deal. Don't worry about it. No, we know they don't do that. We know that the first thing they do is they go and eat the tree, right? They sin and death comes into the world and they were kicked out of the garden, right? We know that's what happened. Here's another question, another question, ready? And I do want class participation. So does anybody know when they got kicked out of the garden, which way they got kicked out? Let me give you a hint. There's only, four possible, there's only four possible answers. There's four directions. Does anybody know? In the back. Not south. Good answer, though. I like it. I like it. East. Thank you. East. They got kicked out east. Um, and I think that's actually like the title of like a story or a song or a band. East of Eden. Isn't that like a band or something? I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah. Anyway. So they got kicked out east, right? Now, why is that important? Why did the Bible specifically say that they got kicked out East. Well, I believe that it's sort of like a, it's almost like a foreshadowing, like a hint that is dropped even in Genesis. All throughout the Torah, which we know is the first five books of the Bible, we have the writers of the Torah dropping these little hints, right? East, all throughout the Bible and all throughout the Old Testament is the direction of rebellion, is the direction of turning your back on God. Um, Look in Genesis 4. I mean, you don't have to turn there, but just think about Genesis 4. When, um, in Genesis 4, when Cain kills Abel, which way does he get, like, banished? East. The Bible says he gets banished east. Um, Also, if you look at um, the Tower of Babel, um, which I think is, like, the pinnacle of the Old Testament, right? Especially early on in Genesis. When these people were trying to build this huge tower up to heaven, it says before they built that tower, all these people were together. They were migrating east. They were turning their back on God. They were rebelling against God. They were going the opposite direction. Of the garden which represents god's intimacy and love and beauty they were going the opposite direction of that and that's why i think it's important that the bible specifically states east right now does anybody know the first person who didn't go east that would be abraham all right and abraham is known as like the like the epitome of faith right in the old testament he was the first one who went west God called him to go west. God called him to go back to the garden, and that was faith. That took faith because nobody had done that until that point. Everybody had went east, but he said, "You know what, God? I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm not going to rebel against you, and I'm going to go west. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back towards the garden. I'm going to go back towards love. I'm going to go back towards intimacy." And I think that's really in- <coughs> Ooh, excuse me. And I think that's really important. Um, so we see this this intimacy all throughout the torah and again the torah is the first five books of the old testament um, and the torah actually is, is interesting first of all um, there's got a lot of stuff in it um, thanks um, the torah is interesting there's actually a specific way that um god gives us in the torah to interact with him right if you look throughout the torah that's like the levitical um, the laws and things like that And basically what it's called is Torah obedience. Um, Now, I don't want to, like, give you these huge words that you're never going to remember. So Torah obedience is essentially um, if you do something good, I will bless you, right? That's kind of what the Torah says. Or if you do something bad, then I will curse you and you'll have to make sacrifices and burnt offerings and things like that. That's what the Old Testament law was all about. It's like, hey, follow these laws. If you follow these laws, awesome, great, I'll bless you. If you don't, uh, probably not. I'm going to curse you, and you're going to have to make burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's what you call Torah obedience. okay? They were obedient to that Torah. They obeyed the law, and they got rewarded if they did. And that's how the, the Jewish people lived at the time. Now, that's okay. That's not a bad thing, um, because that's, that's how it starts, Right, Um, As evangelical Christians, like us, um, that's a scary thought, to live by Torah obedience, right? Because we fumble with those laws and stuff all the time. At least I do. I fumble with the laws every day. Um, So it's scary to us, but Torah obedience actually isn't a bad thing. Um, We've all been exposed to Torah obedience at some point, whether we know it or not. Um, I guess the earliest kind of way that I can remember it is potty training. All right. When you think about potty training. Right. So when I was potty training, you say, um, OK, uh, my mom was like, OK, little Jackson or uh, my aunt kind of raised me at the time, too. So she was like, OK, if you uh, if you go to the bathroom and go potty in the potty, I'll give you this piece of chocolate. Right. That's how you train kids to go to the bathroom to do what you want. That's Torah obedience. OK, because you say, hey, if you do what you're supposed to do, I will bless you and I'll give you a little chocolate or a pack of Skittles or whatever it was at the time, right? Now, that's not a bad thing. None of you guys are saying, no, 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 that's not how you do it. No, it's a good thing, but it's never supposed to stop there. It's never supposed to end that way. There's gotta be something more than that, right? So what I mean by that is, let's go back to the example, okay? So that piece of chocolate is all well and good when I'm two years old learning to potty train, right? But now, if I go home after church and I go to my parents' house and I walk in my parents' door and my mom goes, hey, little Jackson, if you uh, go potty in the potty, I'll give you this piece of candy. No, that's weird. That's creepy, right? But that's, that's weird. But what's the difference? She said nothing different than she did when I was two years old. Why is that weird now? Because I'm different. I've grown and you've matured. You understand that Yeah, I know I'm supposed to go to the potty. I don't need a piece of candy every time I go to the potty. I don't need a piece of candy every time I do what I'm supposed to do. I'm past that. I've gone past that. I've gone deeper than that, right? I know that. And see, that's what a lot of people kind of didn't understand at the time. And that's where a lot of us Christians end up. We see God as like this chocolate God who just blesses you for doing good stuff, and that's it. That, that, that's where we stop. That's the wall. We don't go any further than that. And we see God as this legalistic, joy-sucking God who doesn't want us to do anything except obey his laws. And that's totally not the picture that the Bible paints. Totally different than that. Now, again, Torah obedience is good because that's how you start. That's how you grow. But it's never meant to end right there. But a lot of us as Christians, we stop. We say, okay, cool. Uh, This is nice. Whenever I obey, God blesses me sometimes, and that's pretty cool. I'm straight with that, but it's not supposed to end there. It's supposed to go deeper than that, and I think that the Jewish people at the time never really understood that. They didn't understand that God was trying to take them deeper, and um, they they didn't really get it, right? They didn't really understand that these were not all it was supposed to be Until. until we see David, okay? I would argue that David is the first one that gets it, all right? Um, and this is where you kind of start to see some contradictions in the Bible, even though they're not really contradictions. Um, it's just that the people are finally starting to understand what God actually wanted. And um, if you go to Psalm 51, um, Psalm 51, 16 and 17 is where we're going to look real quick. Um, Frank talked about, Pastor Frank talked about this verse uh, a couple of weeks ago, talked about how David, this is the first time that he realized um, or the first time that he repented for doing wrong, right? We know that he had an affair with a woman, and then he had her husband killed in battle and all that sort of thing. Um, and Psalm 51 is like the, the, the confessional, right? He's like, God, I'm so sorry. God, I apologize. I, you know, I, I'm admitting what I did was wrong, okay? So let's skip down to verse 16 and 17, and it says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. That seems like a contradiction, right? David's saying uh, you don't delight in burnt sacrifices and offerings. But isn't that what the, the Torah tells you? Isn't that what the Old Testament laws told you? Was, hey, if you screw up, make a burnt sacrifice and an offering. David's saying, no, I get it, God. I understand. You don't want my stuff. You want me. You want my heart. And that's where we start to see the Jewish people get it. We see David understand. He's like, this is not like I've, I've done this already. I'm past this. I'm deeper than that. I need to know you more intimately than that. You want me, not my stuff. So David, I would argue, was the first person that started to, to get it, I guess, and understand it. Um, you also see Job. Um, that's exactly what Job's story is too, right? If you read the book of Job, it starts with Job, with the the, the legalistic, the hey, I've I've got, I followed all your rules. I think the Bible even says that um, Job actually like did burnt sacrifices and offerings like for future sins that his kids would commit. So it's like ultimate legalism, right? Ultimate, hey, I'm obeying the Torah and you're gonna bless me. But what happens? He has a really hard time of it, right? That's what the whole book of Job is about. He has a really hard time of it, really bad go of it. Um, So what we see at the end of Job is that he comes around full circle and finally understands that what God is wanting is him. He doesn't want his sacrifices. He doesn't want his burnt offerings. He doesn't want any of that. He wants him. He wants his heart. He wants him to have a relationship with him. And that's when Job finally starts to get it as well. And again... That's the question that I want you guys to keep thinking about is, are you walking in that direction? Are you going that way? Are you finally getting past the laws and the rules and all that stuff and the toward obedience? And are you going deeper than that? Are you getting to where you know God intimately? Because that's truly, that, 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 that's what he wants. And that's what this is talking about. It's saying, hey, that's all well and good. You follow my laws and that's awesome, but it's never supposed to end there. And I think that's what we see with Job and with David as well, is that intimacy. Um, Once we start to get outside the Torah and we get to the beginning of the New Testament, we start to see the New Testament writer saying, yes, that's exactly what God wants. We start seeing these arrows of saying, yes, God wants you to know him intimately. They give out more of these little hints and these little little scriptures of saying, yes, this is exactly what God wants, right? We even see um, Jesus himself in um, his first teachings, right, on the Sermon on the Mount, his first teachings um, in um, the very beginning of the New Testament. Um, if you don't know anything about that, it's basically Jesus' first sort of sort of sermon, I guess. And um, the Bible doesn't really specify, but I would guess just from historical record that the people he was probably preaching to was a majority of Jews, a uh, majority of the Jewish people. Um, and what's interesting about that is Jesus is trying to talk to the Jewish people and trying to get them to understand that, hey, I want you to go deeper than that. His very first teachings right out of the gate in the New Testament, that's what he's talking about. If you go to that Sermon on the Mount, and I'm not going to make you turn there or anything like that, um, but he prefaces everything he says with Torah to get them to ring that bell, to make that connection, right? So what I mean by that is he says, um, he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Okay, Torah, fine, perfect, right? But does he stop there? No, he says, but I say, if you even look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. So see, he prefaces it with the Torah to ring the bell of the Jewish people saying, hey, you've heard it said this. You've heard it said, yes, do not commit adultery. But I say, Jesus says, I say, take take it deeper than that. If you even have any sort of lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. He does the same thing with a bunch of other um, laws as well, with anger. He says, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. There you go. That's Torah, right? Don't commit murder. We get that. But I say, if you even have any sort of hate for your brothers in your heart, then you have also committed murder. So what he's saying is, hey, I get it. I understand what you've learned. I understand that you're operating under Torah obedience, and that's fine. But I need you to understand that it's deeper than that. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your burnt offerings. I want your heart. I want you. That's why he keeps going back to, I say, if you have anything in your heart, he wants your heart. He wants you to be intimate with him. He wants you to know him. So I think it's interesting that, um, that, that these Jewish people finally started to get it at that point. Once he finally started to say, Hey, everything was about a relationship. Everything was about being intimate with him. And I think that's what is really important. Um, and that's one of the things that, like I said, that I think is throughout the whole narrative of the Bible is Jesus saying, hey, be intimate with me. Like, have a relationship with me. That's what I want. Um, now, a lot of you guys are sitting here saying, well, okay, I get it, but, but like, I, I, I don't have that. Like, why, why don't I have that? And that's because I think there are really two things, two things that hinder, <coughs> that, hinder that process that hinder that process of intimacy with God. And the first one is hiding. First one is hiding. I think that's the first thing, and that's the first aspect of why we aren't close with God is because we hide. Um, What I mean by that is we, we don't really understand that intimacy can only come when you're vulnerable, when you open up, right? You can't truly get to know someone Like even not even just God, but in a personal relationship, you can't get to know someone until you're vulnerable with them, until you're totally open and honest and completely out there for them. That's the only way intimacy can happen, right? Because if it's not, if I have a relationship with somebody, but I'm hiding half of me, I have a mask on and I'm only putting my best foot forward, I can always say they wouldn't love me if they knew what I was really like. They wouldn't love me if I took my mask off and I showed them the worst part of me. You can't be intimate that way. You're not vulnerable. You haven't opened yourself up to let them see you. But the best thing about God is that he's not going to reject you. He's not. He literally tells you, hey, I didn't die for your mask. I died for you, man. That's what he says. So why are you hiding? It's hard. It is. Um, But Jesus is never going to reject you. It's a big difference. Um, there's a big difference from that. Um, and let's even take that back full circle, right? So if we go back to Genesis and we go back to the garden, once Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, what did they do? They hid, right? We're not much different than Adam and Eve, you know, thousands of years ago. We still do the exact same thing. We hide. And what I think is interesting um, What is, what is Jesus's response? What is his first response when he sees that they're hiding? Does he say, Adam, man, I told you, sucks to be you, bro. Sorry. No, he asked them a question, right? And I think that's so fascinating is that he asked them a question. He says, where are you? You think God really needs an answer to that question? You think God needs to whip out like Apple maps and tries to figure out where they're at? No, he's God. He knows where they're at. But then why would he ask that question, right? What's the point of asking that question if he, doesn't, if he knows the answer already? I think it's because it's a reflection of his heart. It's a reflection of how he feels. He's saying, hey, where are you? Why, why did you choose something else over me? Where did you go? Why, why did you go away from me? Why? What, I don't understand. And I think God's asking us the same question today. He's saying, guys, my son, my daughter, where are you? He knows where you are. It's not about him trying to find you because, you know, he knows that. He knows everything. But he's saying, why did you choose something over me? Why did you choose to constantly hide and choose things other than the things that I've given to you? He's still asking us those questions today, right? And he asks another question after that, which I think is even more fascinating. He's going to answer a question with another question, right? Obviously, he finds them because, you know, he's God. Um, that's a given. Um, and when um, Adam comes out of the bush and he says, we hid because we were naked, he follows it up with a second question. He says, well, who told you you were naked, right? Again, does he really need an answer to that question? No, he knows that. He's God. but. The point is, it's another reflection of his heart. He's saying, who who told you you weren't good enough? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you didn't measure up to what I had? Who told you, you know, about your faults? Who told you that? Because I didn't. I created you perfect in the image of myself. So who told you that? Right? He's asking us the same questions, guys. Every day, he's asking you, my son my daughter who who is telling you you're not good enough because everything in the bible that i've told you tells you that you are so where are you getting this from it's a reflection of his heart he doesn't actually need the answers to these questions he knows them it's a reflection of how he feels it wants he wants to make us reflect on ourselves like you know why why do i feel like i'm not good enough why do i feel like i don't measure up right that's the point that's the point of him asking these questions, I think. Um, and the cool thing that we find out later on, which I think is awesome, by the way, is we find out that God turns our wounds into scars, all right? And that sounds pretty, that sounds pretty corny. sounds pretty cheesy. I get it. But it's awesome, uh, I think. So wounds hurt, right? Yeah, obviously, wounds hurt. And what do you try to do to wounds? You cover them up. Not with, like, just a Band-Aid. Obviously, you're going to cover them up with a Band-Aid, too. But if I have, like, a huge wound, like, just chilling right here on my arm, I'm not going to just, like, let it hang out for everybody to see, right? No, that's disgusting. I'm going to, like, pull my shirt down. I don't want anybody to see it because wounds are nasty. Wounds are gross. You don't want anybody to see those. They're, like, oozing and stuff, and that's disgusting. And also, what happens if somebody, like, touches it? You, like, pull back real quick, right? Like, no, don't touch that. It hurts. Wounds are nasty. Wounds are painful. Wounds are gross. But God can heal those, right? We know that. We know that God can heal those. What happens when you get a wound, you take it to somebody who can fix it, right? You don't just say, oh, uh, let's see, I have a huge gaping wound here, and uh, I'm just going to let it ride. I think, I think it'll eventually heal itself. No. Me, I take it to my mother because I don't know what the heck to do. Um, but some of you, if it's a little worse, you might want to take it to like a doctor, right? Right? Um, if my mom says, yeah, uh, I can't do anything about that either, I'm going to okay, well, since my mom doesn't know, I'm just going to let my arm fall off. No, that's what we have doctors for, right? So if you take a wound to somebody who knows what they're doing, they can fix it. If you don't, what can happen to your wound? It can get infected, right? And that's pretty disgusting. I'm not going to get into all the details of that. But your wound can get infected. And not to be morbid or anything, but if your wound gets infected enough, y- you can probably die, Right? you can die. And like I said, not to be morbid or anything like that, but spiritually, I think that's a lot of us. We have these wounds that we've hidden from God. We haven't taken them to whom can fix it. We've hidden them. And our wound is just growing and it's getting infected. And eventually, you know, maybe, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, it's slowly killing us inside because we won't just take off the mask and take it to God and say, dude, fix me, right? We won't do that. And it's crazy that we still hide from the one person who can fix our wounds. The one person who can truly heal us, who can truly prevent us from dying, we're hiding from. That's crazy. And eventually that's going to catch up with us. And eventually it'll catch up with you. So, Let me ask you a question. Do you truly believe that God can heal your wounds and turn them into scars? If you do, but you're still sitting here knowing that you have like four or five wounds that need some healing, maybe you don't believe it as much as you thought you did. Or maybe you don't believe it as much as you say you do. Because if you said, yeah, I understand, like my wounds need to be healed, but you're still carrying like a whole bag full of them, maybe you don't, or maybe you need a little help. And that's the whole point of this story is give them to God. Who's the one person who can fix them? Don't hang on to them. Because when you do take it to him, I hope that wasn't important. Um, But here's the best part, right? And here's the best part. Jesus can turn those wounds into scars. Now, scars, they're not ugly and nasty, right, most of the time. I have one, like, right here on my forehead. I uh, tripped and fell into a bathtub when I was little, um, so I got, like, four stitches right across here. I've also got a big one on my knee from playing baseball. Um, so I have, I have scars, right? They don't hurt anymore. Like, I can hit myself in the head, and I don't hurt my scar, right? So Jesus can turn those wounds into scars, and scars are cool because they tell a story, right whenever you see somebody with like a huge scar like right here or like you know a big scar on their back you're going to be like oh what what happened like why did, like it's it's kind of weird right that we ask people hey that looks disgusting what happened to it that's so cool but um, but he turns these wounds into scars right and it's awesome because you get to tell the story about what happened you get to tell the story of healing and that's how we need to be spiritually if you have these wounds that's okay Because when you give them to God and he turns them into scars, you can be like, yeah, man, look what Jesus did for me. Look at this nasty, disgusting wound that I had, but God turned into something awesome. Jesus healed it. And that's so cool. That's so cool that Jesus can turn those wounds into scars. So let him do his job. The Bible calls him the healer. That's one of his names because he does that. He heals. He's the only one that can do it. I can't fix this nasty wound by myself. Only God can, okay? And like I said, if you truly believe that, but you're still hanging on to some of those wounds that, you know, need some work, take them to God. Take them to God. Maybe you need to believe it a little more, and that's okay. That's a lot of us, and that's totally okay. But you may need to believe them a little more. Um, so that's, that's the first thing, is hiding, okay? We don't need to hide. God knows. God created us. He knows what we're hiding under the mask because he made us. Right, but he wants us to take it off and become intimate with him. That's what he wants. That's his call, and he wants you to give us the. He wants you to give him those wounds that he's turned into scars. That's what he wants. Um, and the second thing, the second thing isn't really a word. Um, I just kind of made it up, sort of. So if you're asking me how to spell it, if you're taking notes, I have no idea. Just kind of guess it. Um, it's something I'm going to call biblicism. All right, something I'm going to call biblicism. Now, before you stone me off the stage for saying something about the Bible. Um, let me explain. So I think sometimes we treat the Bible as more of an encyclopedia than like a narrative story, right? We use it to kind of just look up like random things and then that's it. Um, let's see. Another way to put it is do you look at the Bible as a wall or a window? All right. So hear me out. So if I'm looking like at this wall right here, right, all I see is a wall, right? There's nothing there. I mean, I can't, there's nothing. It's just a wall, all right? But now if I'm looking through a window, such as like a windshield on a car, I can see through it. I can see what's on the other side. I see the bigger picture, right? So are you studying the Bible and all you see is the Bible, or do you look through it and read the scriptures because you see Jesus on the other side of it? Because that's a big difference. If you're just using the Bible as saying, okay, the scripture says this and that's what I need to do, that's the wrong way to look at it. You got to see the bigger picture on the other side. You got to see Jesus coming through that. That's what's important. There's a huge difference between the two. And I think a lot of times we get bogged down in the scripture and think that that's what's going to save us when it's not. It's Jesus, all right? And he actually says that in the Bible. Um, if you look at John five thirty nine. 39, um, that's another verse I want to point out. Um, in this verse, it's a, it's a kind of a long passage um, that this little particular scripture is in. But Jesus is actually critiquing the Pharisees, okay? Who probably know more about Scripture than anyone. Um, he's out there telling them, "Hey, you know, you know the Scriptures or whatever." Um, and these are the people who knew the Scriptures; they had to memorize front to back. Um, and he says, "You have searched the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet they bear witness about me." Are these very scriptures that testify about me, um, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life? That's the very end of that verse. The scriptures testify about me, but you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is literally saying, hey man, I'm like a little more than the scriptures, right? He's saying, you know this, and you know the scriptures, and they're saying they all point to something deeper than just the scriptures, But the Pharisees didn't come to him. And that's what biblicism, I think, is. Is are you just reading? Like when you have your quiet time, are you just reading the scriptures to know the scriptures? Or are you actually reading to commune with God? Because there's a big difference. If you're reading just to memorize, that's not what God wants. He wants to have that relationship with you. So think about that as you read the, um, as you read that. And I think about Jesus' ministry when I think about that because that's all about what Jesus' ministry was about. If you think about his ministry and his time, like teaching or whatever, um, what was the main thing that the Pharisees critiqued him for? It was for having relationships with sinners, right? He would go into people's houses and eat with them who weren't considered cool people, right? That's what the Pharisees critiqued him for the most. Well, in... I think that kind of lays the blueprint for how we're supposed to live, right? If we're supposed to be this, is this Christ-like as possible and follow Jesus' footsteps, he like, had relationships with some pretty hardcore, nasty people, right? With the sinners and the tax collectors and people who weren't looked upon highly in society. He had that relationship. He had something more than that. Jesus gives eternal life, not the scriptures. He didn't throw a Bible at him and say, hey, read this and you'll find salvation, no, he went in and ate with them. He had that relationship with them. And I think that's what's so important about this is that it's not about teaching just the truths of the Bible. While that's so important, it's more than that. It's about a relationship. If you have the truth but don't have the relationship, it's not, it's, it's not important. You've got to have that relationship behind it. You've got to be looking at the Bible through a windshield, through a window to see the bigger picture on the other side um i mean even look at jesus's last night before he died if we were going to write that story if we were going to write the gospel we would probably write it as like okay he's about to die he's about to like die on the cross right and completely turn the world upside down so he's going to have like an epic like conference right like with these big christian conferences with this big awesome band and he's going to like teach all night and it's going to be awesome but that's not what he did he had dinner with his friends. Think about that. His last night before he died, he had dinner with his disciples. The people who had been with him for three years. He didn't treat it as like an all-night cram session, like the night before a final in college or anything like that. He didn't get out of blackboard and was like, okay, Peter, I know you're a little slow, but you know, here we go. This is what's gonna happen. He didn't do that. He had dinner with them. That's huge. That's huge. The last thing that God wanted to do before he died was have a relationship and have a meal with his people. That's huge. That's the blueprint for how we're supposed to live. And that's just a call to us. He's begging us, hey, have a relationship with me. That is what is important. I think that's one of the most important things of the whole Bible is that God had these relationships with these people right now as we're um we're about to close um i want to talk about one story real quick it's in luke 24 13 through 32 Um, i'm not going to actually read the whole thing because it's a long it's a long thing um and i've been babbling long enough um I'm just going to summarize it for you, all right? So this is The Road to Emmaus. If you've never read this story, I think it's one of the most, like, underrated stories, like, in the history of the world, right? This is one of the most fascinating stories on the planet, I think. And it's one that doesn't get taught a lot. So essentially what happened, and I'm just paraphrasing, like I said, if you want to read the real thing, you can do that later. That's totally cool. Um, Jesus just died, all right? He just rose again three days later, and he was on the road to a town named Emmaus. He was going on his way to Jerusalem to see the disciples, okay, after he rose again. So he comes up, and he rolls up upon these two guys, all right, these two dudes who are just walking down the street, and he sees that they're somewhat upset, all right? He sees they're kind of sad. So Jesus rolls up to him, and he goes, like, why are you guys sad? Like, Like, what's going on? Um, I'm sure he didn't ask it just like that. I'm sure he was a little nicer than that. Um, But he says, why are you sad? What is wrong? And what's interesting is the Bible says that these two people don't recognize that it's Jesus. All right? So they have no idea who this guy is that just came up to him and randomly asked him. Um, So he comes up on this. um, He comes up on these two people, right? And they basically reproach him. They're basically kind of like, dude. Are you, like, the only person on the planet who hasn't heard what happened? Like, Jesus was just crucified, like, three days ago. Like, they basically say, hey, man, where have you been? Like, come on. And Jesus like, well, I have been dead for three days. So, um, But so they say that he's been dead for um, the, last, the last three days. And that they basically say that their life is a waste. Because they thought that Jesus was this king, this Messiah that was going to come and save them. But he died. They crucified him. So they're like, well, crap. We just wasted the last three years of our life following this dude who has died, right? That's how they feel. That's why they're upset. And they, don't, they didn't understand because they didn't know who Jesus was. Um, so then Jesus goes, well, have you not heard? Have you not listened to what the teaching has been? This is exactly what was supposed to happen from the very beginning. This is exactly what was supposed to happen. So what Jesus does, and I think this is so cool, He pulls out the Bible, and it says from uh, Moses to the prophets, so from Torah to the very end of the prophet. They didn't have the New Testament at this time, so this was still the Old Testament. He pulls out the Old Testament, and he reads it, scripture by scripture by scripture, to these people on the road, telling them of himself. And what's even more interesting is that these people still didn't get it. They still didn't understand Because it says they basically blew him off. They just kept walking. It doesn't say they acknowledged what he said or anything like that. He just kept walking. Then it says a little later, when they came to the town of Emmaus, where they were supposed to come from, Jesus kept walking because he was going to Jerusalem to see his disciples. Um, But these two men said, hey, it's late. We've been walking this whole time. Why don't you come in and have dinner? And Jesus says, all right, cool. I'll come in and have dinner. I'm a little hungry. So he goes inside, and it says he sat down at the table... And he had a meal with them and it says he broke the bread and as soon as he broke the bread in an instant their eyes were opened and they understood what that is crazy right jesus the whole time had just been telling them the scriptures about what was supposed to happen and they still didn't understand they didn't understand that this was jesus but yet the minute he broke the bread, the minute that they had a relationship in a dinner with him, they finally understood who Jesus was and what he was trying to say. Because I think a lot of us in our dream scenario, we would say, yeah, dude, God's going to come down and read us scripture for scripture. We're going to have all the right answers. If we, that's a lot of us, we want that, right? But Jesus's dream scenario is to have a relationship and have dinner with you. And I think that's so underrated that we don't talk about that more. Because Jesus read these scriptures, and they still didn't understand. They didn't get it until he initiated that relationship with them, and they initiated the relationship back by inviting him in for dinner. That's huge. That is huge. And I don't know why that story isn't taught more, because I think it's awesome. Again, go back and read that, and you'll see it. It's so cool. Um, So as we close, real quick. Um, we're going to have uh, the band play. It's going to be an awesome song. It's going to be really cool. Um, and I want to have this time of, of um, fellowship, of communing with God, okay? And I want you to think about one thing. I want you to ask yourself a question. And it's the hardest question that we're ever going to ask ourselves, all right? And it's, do you just want all the right answers? like God reading you the scriptures, do you just want all the right answers? Or do you actually want to have a relationship with God? Do you actually want to commune with him? Because the two is a big difference. Just knowing the right answers and having an actual relationship is totally different from each other. In order to test that theory, the best question to ask for yourself is, do you pray for deliverance from your sins? Because you're supposed to. Do you pray for that deliverance from your sins? Because you don't need, so you won't need God anymore? Or are you praying for deliverance from those sins because you want to push out all the clutter so you'll have more room for him? Because there's two vastly different things. If you're praying for God to forgive your sins just because, so you don't need to depend on him anymore, that's not the right way to do it. You should repent from your sins because you can push away all that sin to have more of room for him in here. And that's the whole point of what this is talking about, guys. This is intimacy. This is intimacy. And as we have this time, um, we're going to sing one of my favorite songs. It's awesome. We did it last week. Um, Come to the altar. Um, I'm going to encourage you guys, man. If you're still stuck in that Torah obedience stage, if you're still stuck communing with God on a surface chocolate God level, you need to commune with him a little more because that's not what he wants. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants every bit of you. He wants you to be intimate with him. And if you need to come up here, if you need to pray, if you need to say, God, I'm so sorry that I have not gone deeper with you. I'm so sorry that I don't understand this whole point of what you're trying to tell me. I've missed the whole point of the Bible, and I'm so sorry, God. Come up here and talk to him. He's ready for you. He wants to talk to you. Um, I'll be around up here. Pastor Frank will be around up here as well. You can come talk to one of us if you want to. But I just encourage you guys, pray. Talk to God. That's what he actually wants. He wants you to have that relationship with him. So as the band is going to play, um, I'm going to close it out with a prayer real quick. And as they begin to pray, I want you guys to make your way up here. If you need to, talk to me. Talk to Pastor Frank, whatever you need to do. All right, let's